And now, proper propaganda. Watch it. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines. Sidestepping the borders. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I am your host, Ramses Jaw. He is Ramses Jaw. I am Q Ward. You are listening to again. And thank you for this. Civic Cipher. Yeah, we do appreciate you tuning in every week, man. We're trying to do something for you, and it seems like you're trying to do something for yourself and for your community and for your brothers and sisters who may or may not look like you. That goes a long way in my book. I will see you in heaven. Stick around because we got a lot more show uh, coming up for you, um, including code switching. Hmm. That is uh, what I what I said earlier. Basically, kind of covered it. Um, black people are in this country are bilingual. And you may not have knew it. Um, and that and you might know it if you've been around a black person long enough or in different circumstances. But we're going to spend some time talking about that. We're also going to uh, discuss our way black history fact. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a white man named Benjamin Lay for our way black history fact. And if you think that sounds interesting, wait until you hear the story. But first and foremost, we're going to show you or rather tell you how to become a better ally. It's time for B-A-B-A, Baba. And today's Baba is brought to you by Major Threads Sportswear. Check out MajorThreads.com for the finest in men's sportswear. Um, today, to become a better ally, we want you to read a book. Um, the book is called How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. Um, and basically, it kind of dispels the myth of kind of the pioneer, you know, westward expansion or, you know, the, 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 the colonists crossing the Atlantic to the new world and making a life for themselves and making a go at it. It largely dispels a lot of myths associated with that way of thinking um, because that way of thinking kind of suggests that everyone else is lazy or doesn't work hard or something like that, right? Um, and the truth is there were lots of deliberate, intentional um, uh, levels in society that, you know, encouraged people to do things, to pioneer, to take over lands. And you were given things and you were able to grow and, you know, transfer wealth from one generation to the next. I'll, I'll quickly read a review. Um, how white folks got so rich is a critical and essential information that non-whites need to understand it be able to make sense of how we ended up in the situation we find ourselves in today, specifically information people classified as black need to know and understand. Black adults and even more importantly, young black people need to understand how the system of racism and white supremacy has played a major role in how people who classify themselves as white maintain dominance and control through a system of cleverly crafted laws and rules designed to undermine black progress every step of the way and privilege uh, white people every step of the way. Um, so yeah, Check that book out, How White Folks Got So Rich. It is uh, interesting. And again, we're not knocking anybody. We're just trying to tell the truth so that everybody understands why we are where we are. Once we understand that, then we know how to move forward as brothers and sisters. Now, code switching. Q, you ever had to code switch? Probably not even aware <laughs> of the amount of it's time it's just happened without without second thought yeah man and i don't think this is i think most people hear that and they uh, immediately connect it to corporate america or the difference in cultures but it's the difference between the way you talk at school versus the way you talk at church it's not just about your black friends and your white friends or mm -hmm. corporate america versus home it's 
your friends versus your mom, your pastor versus your teacher, your football coach versus your, you know, the deacon at your church. It's just all these different forms of not just language, but behavior growing up in this skin, in mm -hmm. this country. Absolutely. There's, um, it's interesting because, you know, you're right. Uh, at church, you wouldn't talk the same way you would, let's say, after school with your friends, you know, growing up. Or if you're, I don't know, hanging out with your buddies. That's not a word I would normally use. But your buddies at a nightclub, you know what I mean? Um, now, everybody can kind of say, well, yeah, I'm going to like push my tongue out a little further if I'm hanging with my friends versus if I'm in church. That's not what code switching is. Code switching is an entirely different posturing different tone you know you got to make sure you don't sound too angry too aggressive um it's it's basically you're putting on your whitest display um i'll challenge that but in, go ahead. In, in 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 the right settings you know in the other ones it's kind of like that but go ahead well uh i think what you're calling well articulated speech is white so that, that, that you're you're putting right on, you're right putting i putting on your whitest as if to substitute white for professional wealth sure, sure, sure. i have to push back on that please please push back on it so let me before you push back let me finish what i'm saying and then you what you're about to say is very necessary so we are often taught to be like them be better than them to be good enough right they hold the opportunities. They're the ones that hire, fire, advance, grade, uh, you know, what, whatever it is that you're doing in life. And by they, I mean white people. This is the, the world that we live in, right? Uh, and so this is a skill that I believe that black people develop at a young age because we recognize that we are, or I, I guess I should speak for myself. I recognize that uh, if I sound like them and I move like them, then I might be able to fly under the radar. I might get a passing mark. I might, you know, I might not be challenged. Um, I might have an easier go at things. You, you have no idea the amount of code switching that happens if the police are behind me and they're like, sir, can you step out of the car? Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, absolutely. I don't talk like that. Right. Um, and, to call it whitening, making yourself as white as you possibly can is absolutely the wrong way to describe it. But in at, at, when you boil it down to it, I think that it's very easy for black folks to make a connection with that code switch and whiteness in a vast majority of instances. Like there is a white presence that is, that, uh, is telling me or that that makes this switch um preferable if if i want certain outcomes here right uh, in other words i may not lean on <laughs> as as my friend cheryl would call it jive talk uh interacting with an employer a person that uh holds the keys to opportunity um, any, anybody that I need to take me seriously, I could be talking to, you know, someone who's giving me bad service at a restaurant. I could be talking to a manager. I could be, you know, whatever the situation is, 
you put on your provided that it's a person that looks white. I could be at the doctor's office. You put on that language, that that face, that posture and try to have that conversation. Now, in contrast, and I do want to hear from you, but let me just wrap this up. In contrast, if I go to a doctor and the doctor is black, it's not strictly speaking necessary. In fact, it might feel a little awkward because you also know, doctor, that I don't talk like this, right? And so there's the potential to have a much more comfortable conversation. This is an experience I had recently. I took my little sister to get her blood drawn um, for a something that she had to take care of medically. And the doctor came in and she was a black woman, braids, you know, just, and she was like, oh, look at you. And my little sister's name is Princess, right? That's her given name. My dad is a G. Anyway, so the doctor comes in and she's like, your name is Princess? Oh, wow, we're about to have some fun today, girl. You know, and that's, you can't imagine a different, a, it's hard to explain the rhythm of we about to have some fun today, girl, from a black woman to another black woman and how important and comforting that is. How the doctor didn't have to code switch. The doctor can just kind of stay where she is and get on my sister's level. My, my sister received that information. She's terrified of needles. She got that blood drawn off, um, blood draw off. No problem. No tears this time. My sister's an adult woman and it's, it's a really traumatic thing for her. That's why I go with her. Um, wonderful experience, right? So push back against the whiteness, uh, the, the thing I've said about whiteness. Go ahead. So I think the reason why my variance of examples was so different is mm -hmm. I'm from Detroit. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> everybody's so I need, black. <laughs> I need everybody to hear that. Yeah. I'm from Detroit, born in the eighties. Yeah. And not 89, 80, 81, 80. Yeah. So born in the 80s. I lived my whole 80s childhood in Detroit. Teachers, friends, neighbors, pastor, doctor, police officers, dentists, all black. Yeah. So even the word code switch means something different to me because right. my change in vernacular, attitude, behavior, and language had nothing to do with your skin color. Yeah. I spoke different to Pastor William Reveille, doctor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Doctor. First of all, that. Yeah. My pastor was Dr. William Reveille. Yeah. My associate pastor was Reverend Estella Seacrest, who, for people who listen to the show a lot, know that's my mother. Yeah. The way I spoke to them was much different than the way I spoke to everybody else. Sure, sure. So that change was more about respect of position, respect of place than skin color. Yeah. I spoke different to my doctor, my pastor, my teachers than I did. Like I said, my football coach, my classmates and mm -hmm. my friends. Yeah. So it was never about being more white. It's a, it's a respect thing. It was in a lot more of more about where am I and who and am I talking what to? What type of impression do I need to make here? If I'm there trying you. to get a job, I'm going to let these people know that I'm learned, yeah. that I'm a scholar, that yeah. I'm educated. And I that can articulate mean, my thoughts. Yeah. So that didn't mean I'm going to talk like my white friend because I didn't have any. Yeah. There was no white example. Yeah. Mr. Wardell, who taught me math, and Miss Moy was Asian. Mr. Wardell was black. They were just smart. My brain didn't think that means they're more like white people. Sure. Right. And fortunately, the white people in my life at that age were also teachers. So they just were people that cared about me. There was not even that. I mean, these teachers, they didn't just work in Detroit. They lived in the city too. Mm -hmm. So the experience was very, very much about the students in the classroom, not 
like the idea of the white savior didn't even play a part yeah. because the the teaching staff was diverse, but predominantly black as well. Cause mm -hmm. again, Detroit, Michigan, my first white classmate was at cast technical high school, my freshman year, but that was almost singular. I didn't have classrooms full of white students until Bowling Green State University. And I think I've told the story of my first year in college. actual inter, uh, encounter with flagrant overt racism. Sure. Um, and then, of course, that, you know, that turns into a snowball and you start to experience it more as an adult. But there was a kind of sheltering of growing up in Detroit with a best friend in high school who moved to Detroit from Gary, Indiana. Yes. Jackson five, Gary, Indiana. Mm. Right. So that's the hood. Yeah. So all of our experiences, the lawyers, the doctors, the and every type of doctor, your Ph.D., your M.D., your sociologist, your psychologist, your your dentist. Everybody was all black. Mm -hmm. Your pastors, your principals, your assistant principals, um, the people who ran the Jesuit high school that you had to test to get into mm -hmm. from Cast Tech to Martin Luther King to Renaissance, black people. So that's my, my, my pushback on the idea that this behavior was about being more like white people. Not for us. Not, yeah. Yeah. It had nothing to do with so, that. Like, so absolutely nothing. It was about, okay, you're about to go talk to doctor yeah you got it reverend mr whatever name came after that mm -hmm. you need to straighten up yeah your pants up tuck your shirt in it's about to use proper language yeah be respectful if you want to receive respect you have to give it and you have to present yourself as respectable you, you, not as white you sound like an athlete you know what i mean you sound like so you that was a these. much different experience for me than maybe some people who grew up in a space where what articulate and educated looked and sounded like was white. Sure, sure. But but I think that I think that your example, what it does is it suggests what our initial um, statement was, is that we're uh, when you grow up black in America, you you grow up bilingual <laughs> because. you have, I'm, I know you've heard this, man, you guys talk so cool. Man, can you can you explain what the lyrics of that rap song means? What is it? You know, like what is a bando? You know, like that sort of <laughs> stuff, right? You talk so cool, right? So, again, having to set like I know for a fact that if you were to take the type of conversation that you would have with your friends in high school and try to have that conversation in front of your mom, she might get lost at maybe three or four points of the conversation like well, okay I'm, i i missed that what, what you know through context clues you can get still a majority of it but there's certain parts where they get lost this happened with my father because we would often leave here go to los angeles um uh, me and my friends from high school we go to los angeles hang out with my father and he would get lost in our conversations he'd be like man the, the way you guys talk is so different my father is as black as me right um but again that illustrates illuminates the fact that yes there is sort of a bilingual um component to be, being black that is not readily found in every other culture right with that said uh for places where it's not as uh, monocultural like a place like uh, detroit uh an environment where it's kind of mixed up a bit think um california you know which is where i'm from and 
where you think of a lot of the people who are in positions of authority, how do they move? How do they sit? How do they talk? You know, your examples come from classrooms often enough and the news when you see these people and they all look white and they all talk like this. They say the whole word like this to quote Riley from the boondocks. Um, and you realize that you're playing a game in their world where they make the rules and they are the deciders at the end of the day. And so this code switching becomes more important um, as you mature. But I think from a young age, a lot of us recognize that having those two languages and knowing when to deploy them in conversations can make a significant impact on outcomes in your life. Now, I do want to read something here. Um, so the question was, why do black people switch the sound of their voice to sound white when speaking to white people? Okay, this is the question that was asked. And the answer was, it's an example of outstanding soft skills as masters of customer service within an assimilated integrationist token environment. The technique of mimicking the customer's cadence, tone, and accent is used to help alleviate the stereotype-based terror white people feel when they speak to black people. In other words, we don't want you to feel intimidated, afraid. We don't want you to feel like we're going to mess things up for you. No, that sort of stuff, right? So this, this response is speaking to those parts of it, right? Which may not be true 100% of the time for 100% of the people, um, but it kind of gives you some insight into the necessity of being bilingual while being black in this country, right? Um, I'm talking to you on the radio right now. I realize that I have to have a an intellectual conversation on the radio every week. I don't talk like this. Man, I am the coolest dude in the world. Man, if you just listen to me on the show, you think I'm as square as that CD cover in the corner. But um, I also recognize that this is something that has come very natural for me. You know, I might code switch six or eight times in a day, depending on how many people I'm around. I actually got to tell our audience, I, I need to work with Ramses on his code switch, though. Because sometimes there's very, very necessary code switch. Oh, and I don't do it. And, and I don't do it. And Ramses, <laughs> forgive my language, be tripping. <laughs> yeah. I'll be having fair. to retext Ramses like, bro. Did you really just mean to say that to that person again? And he's like, yeah, man, they're, you know, they're cool. And I'm like, I don't know if she's that cool. Like, I don't know if that's how we want to address. Uh, anyway, important. Yeah, people we, we that, got off track, yeah, but that's Rams just be tripping. I, I eh, you know. Again, Rams is from Compton. So let me let me remind the audience. <laughs> Q is from Detroit. Right, seven mile road to be specific. Ramses Jai is from Compton. I'll let you guys do your own mental math on culturally what these conversations sound like when the microphones are not here. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think to to piggyback off of uh, the first part of the show, um, you know, Q and I are both people that were in classes for smart kids, and you know, we took tests well and. We can articulate our thoughts um, better than most people. I hope that doesn't sound like we're bragging, but this is something that we found to be true. And we try to use this um, 
these what we what we consider gifts to kind of give people insight into what it's like to be us um to give you a little bit more firsthand knowledge of something you may not otherwise be made aware of and having the ability to articulate these things we feel like it might translate and so um yeah sometimes the uh that switching is is definitely necessary and then sometimes you're right i just don't do it rams this <laughs> but you know there's another part of it too and and i think that this is something that now that we're here is, is worth mentioning um code switching is it is it, I, I know in my heart of hearts, it's not a betrayal of who I am. It's not a betrayal of my people, my culture, my ancestors. That's not it. Um, communicating takes place in a lot of ways. Just because someone else says, you know, the King James version of English is the way to get an idea out of your head into someone else's head uh, doesn't make them right, doesn't make you right, doesn't make any, anyone right. Communication is, can I get a thought from my head into your head? And if I can do that, then we are communicating. I'm not the best Spanish speaker, although it was the first language I spoke. I have a grandmother. Uh, my grandmother's from Cuba. She raised me the first few years of my life. Um, if you were to drop me off in the middle of Mexico, I'd sound like a three-year-old talking to anybody. But am I communicating? Yes, absolutely. I could get myself to a phone booth. I can get myself to a station where there's people that can help me. I can get myself a ticket and get back to the U.S., right? Or get myself a translator. Um, that's communicating. If someone has an accent that you don't love, it's an accent. It in no way is a reflection of their cognitive abilities. Some people are, have brilliant minds and they're not the best speakers. Or some people have brilliant minds and they are the best speakers. They just don't speak in a way that you're accustomed to listening. And these are things that we all have to challenge. Because for a long time, I had stereotypes about people that came from the South. And I thought that people from the South were just slow. And that's not true. They're just Southern. They have a different way of talking. They're not in a rush to get the thoughts out of their brain. They can sort of take their time a bit and let the words lean on top of each other. And once I learned that, I felt like, oh, maybe I'm misjudging. Maybe I'm being prejudiced, you know, and uh, this is something that we all may be guilty of at different points in our life. Um, so if you happen to come across a black person that hasn't code switched in your presence, uh, maybe they're trying to let you know who they really are. Maybe they're trying to bring you over to their side of things. Maybe they're trying to make you feel comfortable with their authentic self. And sometimes I'd be tripping and sometimes I'd be trying to make, <laughs> be trying to make people feel a little bit more comfortable. Uh, let me finish reading this. Um, uh, okay. The alleviate the stereotyped based terror white people feel when they speak to black people okay many times however despite our best efforts the customer will still attack and kill the customer service tech during uh due to self-inflicted anti-black racism being stronger than civility in other words if you hear uh this this example um forgive me for not providing the proper context here but this example came from obviously a customer service example of a black person at work having to communicate right this could be in a store this could be over the phone whatever um it's kind of like the same thing when you you know hit a call center and you can tell that the person based on their accent is from india you might think they don't know what they're talking about 
Um, it's a very natural thing to think if you were raised to think that people off of the news speak the right way. The question you should be asking yourself, however, now and in the future is, can I understand what they are saying to me? And if the answer is yes, that means they are communicating. And at that point, you need to check your prejudices. All right, so it's time for the Way Black History Fact. Um, today's Way Black History Fact is sponsored by the Black Information Network Daily Podcast. And as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about a gentleman named Benjamin Lay. Uh, so let's get started. January 26th, 1682 through February 8th, 1759. Well, that was a while ago. Uh, Benjamin Lay was an Anglo-American Quaker humanitarian and abolitionist. That means he was white. He worked as a sailor. Uh, sorry, he was he's best known for his early and strident anti-slavery activities, which would culminate in dramatic protest. He was also an author, farmer, vegetarian, and distinguished by his early concern for the ethical treatment of animals. Born in England into a farming family, his early trade was as a shepherd and a glove maker. After becoming a Quaker, he worked as a sailor and in 1718 moved to Barbados. Here, he witnessed the poor treatment of African slaves that instilled in him his lifelong abolitionist principles. Lay later settled in Philadelphia and was made unpopular among his fellow Quakers by his confrontational anti-slavery stance. He published several pamphlets on social causes during his lifetime and one book, All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage, Apostates, one of the earliest North American works against slavery. Oh man. Lay stood barely four feet tall, referring to himself as Little Benjamin. He was a hunchback with a protruding chest and his arms were as long as his legs. He was a vegetarian. He only ate fruits, vegetables, and honey and drank only milk and water. He did not believe that humans were superior to non-human animals and created his own clothes to boycott the slave labor industry. He would not wear anything nor eat anything made from the loss of animal life or provided by any degree of slave labor, refusing to participate in what he described as his tracks as a degraded, hypocritical, tyrannical, and even demonic society, Lay was committed to a lifestyle of almost complete self-sustenance after his beloved wife died. My oh, man. I hope people realize how difficult it was to live that lifestyle back then. Time. Yeah, I bet. He sounds like an amazing person, though. That's why we're talking about him today. It's a way black history fact, mind you. Go ahead, Benjamin Lay. All right. Um... He first began advocating for the abolition of slavery when in Barbados he saw an enslaved man commit suicide rather than be hit again by his owner. His passionate enmity of slavery was partially fueled by his Quaker beliefs. Lay made several dramatic demonstrations against the practice. He once stood outside a Quaker meeting in winter with no coat and at least one foot bare and in the snow. When passerby, passersby expressed concern for his health, he said that slaves were made to work outdoors in winter dressed as he was. On another occasion, he kidnapped the child of slaveholders temporarily to show them how Africans felt when their relatives were sold overseas. That is a gangster move. Indeed. The most notable act occurred in Burlington, New Jersey at the 1738 Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of Quakers. 
Dressed as a soldier, he concluded a diatribe against slavery, quoting the Bible, saying that all men should be equal under God by plunging a sword into the Bible containing a bladder of a blood red pokeberry juice, which splattered over those nearby. So he, was, he had a flair for the dramatic as well. Uh, okay, this next part comes from this. I pulled some of this from Wikipedia, just so you know my source. Um, this next part comes from a Smithsonian Magazine article. Uh, which regarded the uh, Burlington Quaker meeting incident. Okay, so you might hear some stuff again because two different sources. All right, he finally rose to address this gathering of weighty Quakers. And many friends in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey had grown rich on Atlantic commerce, and many bought human property. To them, Lay announced in a booming voice that God Almighty respects all people equally. Rich and poor, men and women, white and black alike. He said that slave keeping was the greatest sin in the world and asked, how can a people who profess the golden rule keep slaves? He then threw off his great coat, revealing the military garb, the book and the blade. A murmur filled the hall as the prophet thundered his judgment. Thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslaved their fellow creatures. He pulled out a sword, raised the book above his head and plunged the sword through it. People gasped as the red liquid gushed down his arm, women swooned. To the shock of all, he splattered blood on the slave keepers. He prophesied a dark, violent future. Quakers who failed to heed the prophet's call must expect physical, moral, and spiritual death. The room exploded into chaos, but lay stood quiet and still like a statue, a witness remarked. Several Quakers quickly surrounded the armed soldier of God and carried him from the building. He did not resist, he had made his point. The article also describes Lay throwing tobacco pipes at fellow Quakers at meetings in Philadelphia while loudly protesting the slave labor upon which the tobacco growing relied. At other Quaker meetings, whenever anyone who owned slaves stood up to talk, which is how Quaker meetings work, he'd jump up and yell things like, there's another inward master to shame them. He regularly said slave owners bore the mark of the beast and were basically Satan incarnate. It came as no surprise to Lay or anyone else then ministers and elders had him removed from one gathering after another. Indeed, they appointed a constabulary to keep him out of meetings all around Philadelphia, and even that wasn't enough. After he was tossed into the street one rainy day, he returned to the main door of the meeting house and lay down in the mud, requiring every person leaving the meeting to step over his body. Lay was disowned by the Quaker Society in 1738 because he just wouldn't stop calling out elders as rich members for their hypocrisy on the issue of slavery. Also that year, Benjamin Franklin published one of Lay's anti-slavery pamphlets, All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage Apostates. But Franklin owned a slave and later bought two more. Lay called him out. Lay refused to eat or wear anything uh, produced in any way from slavery. He was a vegetarian and his wife died. Uh, he lived in a cave, kept goats and bees, farmed vegetables and fruit trees and grew flax so he could spin it to make his own clothes. And he had a library of about 200 books. So uh, I think that's kind of partially some, some way black history for you. And uh, Baba as well, becoming a better ally because that guy was risking it all, all four feet of him. And not just risking it, but going to... Uh astronomical lengths yeah sure to minimize his impact on is to be the example the the entire industry of the country at that time was sure. on the backs of black people yeah so that's why i said at that time to 
be semi-vegan or to not wear cotton. Take that stance. Yeah, there was no, there was no, you know, artificial. There wasn't a store you can go to where you could buy clothes that weren't either animal or slave work. Yeah. So to eat and dress and live in that manner at that time, far more difficult than it sounds. Yeah. Because a lot of people in the, it's in vogue to live like that now because we have so many options. They didn't exist then. Fair point. Well, um, if no one else remembers Benjamin Lay, we're definitely going to do it today. One time. And uh, that'll be it for us today here on Civic Cypher. So once again, I'm your host, Ramses Cha. This is Ramses and Q, man. I don't know what you want me to say. Q Ward, man. That'll work. Okay. Q Ward. I'm yes, sorry. Indeed. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend. Okay, don't let Ramses cash on that. Nah, man, he's this is big facts over here. Um, anyway, we want to thank you for listening to the show. Uh, do us a favor, hit the website civiccipher.com, download this in any previous episodes, make a donation to the show. We keep growing, it's because of you. Mm-hmm. We got more announcements coming your way as well. Um, if you've missed any shows, go ahead and download. Um, any previous episodes are on all the podcasting platforms. Uh, tap in with us on social media. We are at Civic Cipher on all social media platforms. Um, talk to us as well. Send us feedback, share the content. Let us know what you want us to cover. We will do our best to empower you to, to create the best ally that we can out of you. And we promise you that we are going to be your brothers on the other side of that um, into well into the future. So until next week, y'all. Peace. Like this, 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 like this,